0: Welcome to Flowstars. Candid conversations between Dr. Peter O'Toole and the big hitters of flow cytometry. Brought to you by Beckman Coulter
1: at Bite Size Bio. Today on Flowstars, I'm joined by Gary Nolan of Stanford University School of Medicine. And we talk about moving outside your comfort zone.
0: I went there to learn biochemistry, something I didn't have. I mean, I always tell my postdocs and students, I don't think this is novel, Go learn something you don't know.
1: Collecting carnivorous
0: plants. I collect carnivorous plants. And strange plants, I like st- odd plants.
1: Reading for escapism.
0: I only read science fiction and fantasy. Okay. I, I'm i only interested in stuff that's not real. And UFOs. I've involved with this for the last 10 years since the basically the CIA showed up in my office and asked me to help them um, with some uh, of their pilots and ground personnel who'd gotten too close to what they claimed were UFOs, uh, and that they'd been um, they'd gotten sick.
1: All in this episode of Flow Stars. Hi, and welcome to Flowstars. I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today I'm joined by Gary Nolan from Stanford, uh, and also for many other things, which we'll get to as we go along. So, Gary, hello. Hello, nice to see you, and thanks for the invitation. Yeah, likewise, it's been a long time since since I last saw you, which I think was back in Glasgow, maybe in the UK, Flow cytometry UK, I think. Uh, Yeah, I I, I know I've been to a site since then, but I can't remember. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> that, that, I remember your talk really well from Glasgow, though, talking about Acoya uh, and Codex. Oh, yeah. No, that's gone pretty well. They went public
0: um, about two months ago on NASDAQ. But,
1: I, I didn't realize, actually, that they hadn't already gone public, because I, I know a couple of the beta sites uh, over in mm-hmm. Belgium, uh, Ghent, mm-hmm. Lubin, Combo, the VIB. Uh, so how is it going with Codex? Um,
0: well, as far as I can tell, great. I mean, um, you know, the whole point of starting a company was to be able to get all the quality control and, um, let's say, the somebody to take care of the questions, the more routine questions on a daily basis. So, all I know is that everybody who's got one, nobody's emailing me about the problems anymore, at least. Um, and so that to me at least says, okay, they're getting what they need from the company itself. Uh, I know that their, um, financials are doing great. Actually, I can't, I'm on the board, so I
1: can't say much more. That. Yep. So I, you know, let this I, I wasn't going to start here, but now we're here. Let, let's go with this. Cause what is, what, in, the, in academia, there's a lot of people who are resistant to commercializing things and putting a cost to it. What are the I think you've touched on some of the benefits already, uh, but you know, why is it so important that out of academia, you still get spin outs commercialization of the products? Why is that so important? So, you know, if you really believe in your idea, right. And you think that it
0: has uh, commercial value waiting around for the government to fund you is probably a big mistake. Right. I mean, as uh, as a technology expands, as more money needs to go into it at the very least, there's no money left in the NIH and our side, or um, I don't know what the various funding agencies are in in Britain, but uh, they just can't afford it anymore, right? And so, and at another level, it, it, you know, a review committee would look at it and say, well, this is a risk, right? So we don't know that we have the money for that risk. Whereas if you go to commercial side, venture capitalists, They will look at it as a measured risk where there is a return for them, right? The NIH is not looking for a return. They're looking for a global return, health benefit and things like that. But the VCs are looking for a financial return. And so they'll look at the individual um, and their track record. They'll look at the technology, and it's what they think might be its potential, and say, okay, well, there's a measured risk here. Here's what we'll put in. Right, and so there's way more money, obviously, available. I mean, I can I can drive down to Sand Hill Road, which is about maybe five miles from here, and it's on my way every day to Stanford. I basically drive down it, and there's you know probably half a trillion dollars along that road, waiting to be somebody to talk them out of it. So you know that's really the opportunity, and you know I I think it's. Again, if you, if you just put it on a library shelf and expect people to take advantage of it, um, that's a mistake. I mean, we all know, me scientists all know that they think that their ideas are the best thing since buttered bread, right? But actually getting it to somebody and convincing them and then getting it out there to everybody else, that to me at least is the satisfaction that, okay, I've, other people are using it now. Um, and, and that's the validation, I guess, that we're looking for.
1: Yeah, I, I guess with the likes of codex, you could—I know—heat Robinson—the setup in your own lab to a degree. Although the probes are more difficult, but I think scientists in general, would you agree, are wanting off-the-shelf solutions so they can just do their science, answer the science questions, yeah. not play around, and and they don't want to be engineers right. and muck with, you know, buffer conditions
0: and all the rest. So, um, I mean, that is what I was mentioning earlier about the quality control. You just want something you can hand out and it'll work again and again. And, you know, people I found, even when I was a student, um, I would much rather buy the NEB ligase buffer than make my own and worry that the ATP hadn't gone bad. (laughs) Right? So, you know, it's just, uh, it, it can get, too expensive if you if you overdo it. You know, there's a little bit of, I think, self-ability that you need to work on, that not everything can come in a kit. Uh, but, you know, I
1: think that that's probably the best way to, to look at it. I, I Just thinking about the commercialization, would you say that you are actually saving the NIH money? Because a lot of your research and development funding and, and some of your lab members are paid by the venture capitalists.
0: Yes. I mean, well, we're saving money in the sense that, you know, if you're bringing a new technology to the, to the table, uh, you're giving people an ability they didn't have before. So, you know, if, if it would take 10 times as much effort to access the information um, that your technology can access with one X, then obviously you're saving money. Right. And then you're saving money on the, on the far end with that you're, you're actually providing more data, per unit value. Uh, and that, hopefully, at least in the work that I've always been interested in, translates into clinical applications. So if you're if you're saving a single life, to me, that's invaluable.
1: So, uh, yeah, so Codex, brilliant. Uh, actually, I really do like Codex the technology. <laughs> I, just, I just love the approach, the strategy of it. But that's not the only company you spun out. Uh, not your only, yeah, so you've had uh, off, uh, right, maybe, so multiplexed, ion beam imaging. Where did the ideas come from? Yeah, that's a lot of innovation and, and different innovations. Where do they come from?
0: Right, well, I'll, I'll go down the list real quick. So Rigel, which is another public company, yep. and they've a the drug on the market, FDA approved, and I started that one when I was an assistant professor way back when. That was when, just back to your earlier point, that was when there was a lot of resistance. I mean, I was told I was ruining my career. There's a write-up of me in Forbes about how I'm some sort of evil you know, capitalist preying on uh, you know, academia. Um, and uh, you know, the, what else was there? Then there was Nodality, which actually didn't do well. That was the only one that failed. Um, then there was Bina that we sold to Roche for $110 million. Um, And then there was uh, IonPath, maybe, Acoya. Um, what was the other one? Oh, Scale. There's another small company that I started that I also sold to Roche uh, on the single-cell combinatorial indexing uh, that uh, has been spun out again from Roche. Thirty million was invested, um, and that's Jay Shindora, Cole Trapnel, and myself. And that basically is a single-cell uh, protein, RNA, and uh, attack seek um, simultaneously multiplexing. So it actually the intent, the original intent of that um, was to replace Cytof. Yeah, right? because Cytof has a limit; it's expensive. We can do Cytof plus. We can do hundred parameters. Uh, easily um, for one tenth the cost, and we already published that in Nature Communications uh, last year, I think, or earlier this year. So, so, so you're good. your own competition. Yes. Well, Saitov. I mean, yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, as useful as Saitov is, it's expensive, um, and uh, it takes specialized flow. it takes specialized mass spectrometry knowledge. Um, you know, I think it whet the appetite of the world, the immunology world, at least for high-parameter flow. Um, you know, for many years, Beckton Dickinson tried to beat it, promising me that they were going to crush it. Beckton Dickinson didn't, didn't, so <laughs> hi there. Still haven't beat it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think the, to me at least, is I mean, this idea came to me literally in a sort of a download in a in a uh, talk I was uh, at in Sweden just sort of fully formed And I said wow oh that's a cool idea Um, and
1: uh, you know so we've taken it forward and it works. How long to develop so from that moment of I've got an idea this will work how long to get from there to seeing the first results come off an instrument that's used for it to commercializing?
0: I mean, for the CyTOF, I mean, it was many years. Uh, I mean, originally it was invented by Scott Tanner. So I can't claim invention, Scott Tanner at the University of Toronto. Um, He had already started his company DVS. He came to me saying, okay, well, I'm a spectrometrist. You're an immunologist, can you help me? Um, And so, you know, I saw the value of it and uh it was probably about two years for us to get the data for the for the first science paper that we had on it the paper in science that basically demonstrated the value and the utility so it's usually about a year or two i mean codex from inception to our first instrument was about six months but our first instrument was built on with um legos you know to move stuff around and it, you know, tape and glue and, you know, it was a mess. Uh, so it was basically two years to our first instrument. Um, and then shortly thereafter, the company was funded. Uh, and then it was another year to get it all ready to go in a beta That's form.
1: remarkably fast, It, it, yeah. it is re- really fast. And to get it to market and to get in, or even if it's not fully commercialized, to get it to other end users that is incredibly fast. If if we look at the microscopy world, it doesn't seem to be that fast. Certainly the commercialization seems to take a lot longer. Is that because you've commercialized it with spin-outs rather than going to big companies to start with? Is it because you develop a company around it that it can be faster? Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you've ever worked within larger companies, I mean, I've not worked at a large company, but I've worked within many of them. There's this kind of emergent property of companies where the individuals are great people, but once it gets into a large enough organization, it just becomes molasses. And frankly, you have a lot of not too bright people end up running things, um, or at least they're inhibited in the kinds of decisions that they can make, or they're conservative. And so you can't get good ideas running in a big company, unless there's something very unusual like Genentech and their research division, where that kind of creativity is promoted. Um, and so I've always found that the smaller company, if you can get the right individuals, I mean, you have the best idea, but the wrong individuals and it'll all just implode. Um, and so, uh, you know, get the people, I usually try to move some of my students out if they're interested into it. And then I have enough connections in the area to know who's good and who's not to put in as a, uh, as you know, CEO or COO types. Um, and then you just stand back. I mean, I, I'm actually not a micromanager at all, ask any of my students. Um, and so if you it, it's about learning how to trust people and not get in the way. I mean, one of the things I saw in one of my earlier companies, Rigel, was that when the company gets big enough, they see the founder as um, someone who's interfering with their decisions, coming in and you know, you're you're second guessing them and Um, at, say, science meetings. And for me, I was never trying to second guess them. I was just offering my opinion. But they see it as a form of interference. So I found that you kind of have to let go and and let them do their thing and only interfere at the level of the board, not try to interfere directly because it sort of questions their authority. um, And that's the best way to get pushed out of the company. So I, I, I learned that early on. And, and that's hard for scientists, especially if it's like your only idea, your first idea, you just don't wanna see it go down the tubes. And you know, commercialization research is a very different thing than academic research. And so you have to learn that difference. And a lot of scientists who start companies don't know the difference.
1: I, I, I can understand why that can be very difficult because obviously you know it, Inside out, you've, you've got the concept, you know where it's wanted, where you want it to go, <clears throat> but maybe sometimes academics aren't the best business people either. Yeah. No. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, they um, think that when they, 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 they read how to start a company on the internet, now they're an expert. It, it's like reading how to do a protocol is not the same as doing it. There's a lot of art and Zen to the doing of science
1: as much as starting a company. And as you say, getting the right people who, who've got the business side, which may be very different to the way an academic would develop it. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. Difficult times. How, how do you how did you learn to sit back and, and not get involved with the, just the fine details? You say it was just learning on the job. And
0: I mean, for me, it was learning, you know, but also, well, you have to be able to read a room. Right? So if you're sitting in a room and you can see that the person who you've ostensibly put in charge of the project kind of fidgeting as you're talking, or you get a sense that they didn't like what you said, rather than attacking them, say, okay, what is it that I did that, caused, that causes them to be, you know, like a hermit crab and pull back? And, and w- what operationally is happening politically Uh, in the immediate environment that uh, you say, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't be here, right? Maybe I need to approach the problem from the outside rather than attacking it, you know, from within. And I think that I've always been a good read of people. Um, And so uh, a lot of scientists don't read the room. Um, And so one of the big VCs that I worked with, uh, Kleiner Perkins once on one of my companies, the, the partner there that I worked with when she and I would go out and and talk to uh, potential uh, partners for the company. Um, you know, the first thing that we did, is sort of, as a debrief afterwards, is said, did you see how she reacted when you said that? She was a very good reader of the room, too. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a lot of that. That's how I learned, you know, was watching and 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 listening to others who would say, Gary, step back.
1: So, and I presume you brought those skills into your, your academic yeah. life as well, because I, I can imagine the same mistakes would happen with anyone. So I think that advice is really sa- really insightful, actually, of uh, uh, how to deal with that. Uh, you know, I was, in,
0: I, I was in David Baltimore's lab for my postdoc, right? And any immunologist, you know, who's been around for a decade or two would know of David. Um, and so all the postdocs in his lab had been, let's say their mentor's favorite student. That's how you, you know, and you were good, right? Presumably um, you were good. But then you get a bunch of people like that in one lab all at once and basically a bunch of prima donnas. And uh, and so it's a microcosm of the bigger world that you're gonna walk into where everybody is smart. And so you have to, you have to read everybody and what their potential agendas are, right that um, you know and and not become a jerk, uh, but find a way to navigate how to work with a lot of other smart people towards a
1: common and positive goal. So, you you mentioned working in David's lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, you I guess. I could be wrong here, but most famous for your innovations, uh, your technology development in the innovation space. And yet you started as a biologist. Uh, You know, David is a immunologist. Biochemist, immunologist. Yeah. So how how did that transition occur? Is it a transition or do you still see yourself as a cancer researcher, leukemia, immunologist? How do you see yourself? I see myself a mile
0: wide and an inch deep. Um, So, you know, I was was an immunologist in uh, Len Herzenberg's lab. I mean, but again, more, I was his first or maybe second major, let's say molecular biologist. But, you know, I learned all the computer stuff from Lee Herzenberg uh, and then the immunology from Len. And Len was an innovator. Um, And I actually watched Len interact with a lot of companies and I watched how he would do deals. He would bring me in to watch how he would do deals with other companies to get them to fund his lab. So I learned how to basically extract money from companies uh, early on with, with him. And of course, Len had two of the biggest patents at Stanford, right? He had the he had the cytometry patent, which brought in a lot of money. And then he had the um, humanized antibodies. So I mean that, that brought in literally billions to Stanford. Um, And they made quite a bit of money too themselves, the Herzenbergs. Uh, So in in David's lab, I went there to learn biochemistry, something I didn't have. I mean, I always tell my postdocs and students, and I don't think this is novel, um, go learn something you don't know, right? Go learn a talent. And so David's lab was biochemistry and NF Kappa B and transcription factors were the big thing back then. And so that's where I went to what I went to his lab to do. But as it turns out along the way, um, we needed to deliver genes better to cells. And that's how I came up with the 293 T-cell retroviral expression system. How to make retroviruses in two days rather than two months. Um, And that was just, that just grew out of need. Right? It was like, gee, I don't want to wait two months. How do I do this? Oh, I have this cell line that I know is really transpectable. Why don't we just try this? You know, and so that ended up turning into the Phoenix cell lines. And actually, all retroviruses are now made in 293 T cells or 293 cells.
1: Yeah, super easy to work with as well.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I was still a better technologist than I was either a biochemist or an immunologist in David's lab. Right? But um it was uh, you know, I think it was a great step. I mean, it was also a great place for for connections, right? I mean, David's lab pretty much peopled the immunology, you know uh, starscape over the years. And so, you know you always had a bunch of people of similar mind around. And then, again, watching people, watching the multiple different ways that you can be successful by looking at your peers. And then looking at David, um, you know, and, and learning from him. I think I spent, you know, a total of 30 minutes one-on-one with David over my time. But, I mean, he had 30 postdocs. You learned from him in group meeting, which was two or three times a week. Because it needed that much time for 30 postdocs to go over their updates.
1: That's Yeah, but very little time overall then. What? Yeah, but you, didn't, but you didn't need it.
0: I mean, you're surrounded by amazing people at the Whitehead at the time, you know, we were on the same floor with Richard Mulligan and um,
1: uh, the Weinberg lab, right? Bob Weinberg. So so you mentioned Len and his inventions as well and how much money that made for uh, Stanford Institute. How much comes back into the lab itself uh, to fund new research? Um,
0: well, for Lens Lab, quite a bit. You know, so the way it works at Stanford, if you have a, um, intellectual property or royalties, fifteen percent comes off the top, goes to the Office of Technology Licensing to continue to fund yep. that operation, and then the remaining goes one third to the school, Stanford, one third to the department, um, and then one third to the inventors. And then the inventors will divvy it up according to some whatever internal agreement they can manage to come up with. Um, and so, a- actually, in reality, none comes directly to your lab. Um, it comes to the department, and then it's up to you to convince the, the department head that you know I should get this because of what I'm bringing. Um, and so you, you might say, well, what's the threat? Why, you know, where's mm-hmm. your leverage to get any money? Um, well, your leverage is at least what I've always done, is if you don't give me this, I'm going to the next time you invent something, invent it outside of Stanford, uh, and you'll get nothing.
1: Yeah. So Yeah, I certainly over here it's quite hard to do that because kind of your contract is with the university mm-hmm. and you're kind of tied in with a lot of those inventions if if you use a lab space to come up with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's what Stanford did early on was realize that, you know, leave it in the hands of the inventor because they're the ones who really believe in it, first of all, and trust in their decisions as long as you're not doing something which is essentially unethical or a real major conflict of interest. Um, and, you know, over time, like with me, I've built a, a track record of not screwing anybody over, right? I mean, uh, my company, Akoya, two of my postdocs, uh, that we started it with, they're equal partners with me, right? I always make it equal partners. Yep. I don't take 90% cause I'm the friggin' professor, right? Uh, because that's just not, I don't think it's fair. Second of all, the postdocs are doing a lot of the work. And if I've got five companies going on, I'm partaking of all of them. So why do I
1: need to be greedy? Right, it gives them an incentive, course, yeah, to, to really deliver because it's their, you know, they've, they've got a big potential.
0: Yeah. Well, with Akoya, I mean, these two guys are going to do quite well.
1: And yeah. hopefully carry on to, yeah, carry on innovating themselves. They've
0: already started, they've already started another company
1: so they so there you go so yeah definitely we to do it themselves and it the income comes back around it's quite you know you need that financial incentive i think back to the lab back to the person yeah to encourage them to commercialize it yeah. back to where we started of you know the, the why commercialize it that income is vital yeah. for the university for the departments because it enables them to it gives them breathing space yeah uh, well, it too.
0: comes back indirectly as well through grants. So for instance, with Akoya or Sitoff um, and MIBI, I mean uh, <laughs> there's many, many other investigators at Stanford who write grants around the use of those things. So, and I write grants around it. And so um, money flows that way. I mean, you know, probably truly hundreds of millions of dollars have come in over the years because of the technologies that I've basically brought to Stanford. And I bring it to Stanford first. So there's a local incentive to say, okay, well, I'm gonna get this established here first. Yeah. Um, so we get
1: to basically take advantage of it before our peer institutions do. How much resistance do you get uh, for the early adopters to start using the equipment?
0: Um, well, really not much because, um, so here's the reason why I've, I've always worked with um, technologies or I've found myself, Better able to work with technologies, you know. Scientists usually conflict with each other um, over hypotheses. My hypothesis, your hypothesis, right? Who's right? Um, I look at the stuff that I work on as what's insufficient with the kind of data that I'm getting right now. That I wish I could do better, right? Because if if I'm playing with the same technology with everybody, it's just you know, do I do my postdocs sleep less, right? Are we just, you know, smarter or whatever? In general, uh, you know, I don't think any group is necessarily smarter than another. It's really what tools they bring to the table. So I look for what's inevitable, right? So what is inevitably that, the kind of data that we need to collect, right? So we might not have the ability to do that, but then you imagine what the perfect technology would be. You know, I want to image and look at as many different markers as possible. That's a nice, you know, mission statement, but there's no technology or practicality behind it. But then you start stepping back. Okay. How would I do this? How could I do 50 to hundred markers? Um, okay. And that's 50 to a hundred antibodies. How am I going to measure 50 to hundred antibodies? You can't do it with fluorescence directly. So, you know, and then you just go down that, that iteration path. Um, And so what you end up providing then, having created that, and you go out and you publish a great paper like we did with Science or the for Cytoff or Mibi or other things, other people look at it and they go, wow. And you you always try to write the paper in a way that other people can see your paper as a window for their own success, through which they could view their own success. And they go, ah, I can use that for what I'm doing, and prove my hypothesis and beat that person, right? So you basically, you end up being an arms salesman. You're selling a new technology to both sides, and you don't partake in their argument. You just tell each of them that they can beat up on the other one
1: uh, better. So you're funding both. You're you're, you're you're arming both parties. Sit back, sit back, and you know enjoy the show. So. Huge amounts of innovation, lots of work ethic. What do you do to unwind? What are your hobbies?
0: Uh, I play video games. Uh, usually, What's your on- favorite
1: playing. video game?
0: Uh, I used to play um, uh, EverQuest. It's an old, old, old video game. It's an old one. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just something that turns your brain off, but it's a bit of a strategy game. You okay. Know? Um, what else? And- uh, I collect carnivorous plants and strange plants. I like st- odd plants,
1: you know. So, so you've gone from arming research groups, and now you're arming plants. Arming plants.
0: Well, they're just fascinating. They're beautiful. Um, you know, they're. Uh, I mean, the carnivorous aspect doesn't interest me as much as just the unusual beauty of them. And you know, you look at them and you think about evolution. And how did this how did this trait evolve? And it turns out that the trait actually probably only really evolved twice. Um, almost all of the carnivores have a common root back in time. Um, and as different as they might look today, they actually had a common ancestor that somehow. Uh, you know, uh, tripped upon the ability to stick insects to it and then devour them.
1: I I wish I'd asked you actually to have one or two next to you so we could actually see a couple couple of these. (laughs) I could go out to the greenhouse and get one. So so how how many have you got then? I've got
0: around 150 different species. Most, as it turns out, from Australia. Um, Australia probably has the biggest collection of or uh, diversity of carnivores um and then a whole bunch from borneo and then others from scattered around north america south america and africa that's where they generally are and you cross breed these the yes that's the, actually the, almost the most fun to take two extreme forms of say um the sundews the Drosera, and cross them and actually you get a viable you sometimes get a viable hybrid and that's the most fun. To see, you know, but the the um, the Victorians were crossing the Nepenthes. Those are the pitcher plants that kind of hang. You if you go to, you know, Kew Gardens, for instance, you'll see uh, these uh, Nepenthes in a large number of the big open uh, greenhouses. I don't know what you call the large ones, um, and because they just were so unusual looking, the Victorians were really big into into collecting them at the time. <laughs>
1: So, you're now comparing yourself to a Victorian, which is uh, probably doing yourself a disservice. <laughs> <So>
0: <laughs> they thinking... were, but, they were, but they were very inquisitive, right? And recognizing things for their own beauty, right? I mean, they so, were busy pillaging the planet and bringing it all back to England. But, you know, sorry if I offend anybody with that. I'm British, so I can say those things.
1: I was about to ask, actually, what, what, what are your British roots? Ah,
0: I was born in Liverpool. Um, my mother was a nurse, my father was uh, a, an engineer on a ship. And so he got to go around and see a lot of the world. Um, and uh, that was when he realized that at that time being from Liverpool um, was not going to be a, uh, an upward mobility uh, opportunity. Um, And so he decided to move the family to the U.S. I think I was a year and a half when we moved.
1: Where did you move to? Uh,
0: Originally to Brooklyn. And then my dad had a job as as an engineer, basically power services. And um, then we moved to Louisiana and Seattle. We moved around a lot, trying to find a place where uh, my, my mother, as it turned out, was allergic to mosquitoes. So Louisiana and Seattle were out. Yeah. Uh, so we ended up settling in Connecticut, which is pretty much where I grew up. That's a, I, I, how old were you when you settled? I think five or six. Yeah, it was kindergarten. So okay. five or six
1: by the time we settled. A lot of switching around, but settled at a school age, I, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. God. So if you could live anywhere, where would you live in the world? Kauai. Okay. There's not many coniferous plants there, are there? No, but I'd, I'd have to bring them all there. <laughs> and what's the attraction? I like
0: tropical areas. You know, uh, it, it just smells good. Okay. You know, it's just, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other places, but I mean, you're really talking where you want to retire. That's where I, you know, that's one of the places. Spain near barcelona right um portugal i actually wouldn't mind moving to ireland or
1: having a place there okay well but you've just gone from quite warm tropical or warm areas to ireland yeah it's not the warmest if
0: i uh if, what what's the quote if i contradict myself i contain multitudes <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay and you've got irish roots as well yeah, yeah.
0: Mother's maiden name Murphy Nolan. I mean, those are like two of the most common
1: uh, Irish names. Yeah, sure. e- yeah, even more common than O'Toole, I think. For for it.
0: So yeah, what was interesting is I w- I went back and looked. You know, following the roots, the Nolans have somebody I don't know who did it. They have the largest genealogy and actual genetics tracing. They have like there's like a web page where all these. Nolans have collected the 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 genetics and following it on on the X chromosome, the particular uh, RFLP on the X chromosome that, and they can trace it all the way back. And then they've traced it off to somewhere in the somewhere in like Uzbekistan is where the original um, mutation came from.
1: Yeah, well, I I guess probably most of us probably originate around that area from from a European perspective and European roots. Who in your career do you think has been, uh, this may have multiple answers actually, Mm -hmm. who's been your inspirations inside and outside of work?
0: Um, Well, I would say inside, you know, inside work. I mean, my three mentors, um, Len and Lee, uh, for different reasons, you know, David Baltimore for, you know, the, I guess, the, the height of, of, um, focus that he had on, on things. Um, an earlier mentor as well, this guy, Aladar Zaleh, with whom I still work, he was my undergrad mentor. Um, and so he and I work pretty closely still together. He's actually taking a sabbatical in my lab. Um, he's from the University of Würzburg now. Um, outside work, uh, you know, it would be people like, um, you probably don't know him, Jacques Vallée, Uh and uh, he's mid-80s and he's a very good friend, um, and uh, a guy by the name of David, um, no, no, not him, John Mack. Uh, and uh, there is one of my outside hobbies that I follow. <clears throat> okay. And who would you most like to meet if you could? Richard Dawkins. Okay. I just love his stuff. And uh, who's the other one? The uh, uh, Roger Penrose, right? Just won the Nobel prize for quantum physics, but is really, at least his work is beautiful from quantum physics, but he's been the person most pushing the notion of quantum consciousness. The notion that uh, your consciousness is not, you know, between your neurons your consciousness is actually computed uh, in your microtubules because they have a quantum signature and that's where quantum computation occurs. He got a heck of a lot of flack for the idea, um, but he's been the biggest proponent of it and uh, it just makes sense.
1: Thinking, I, I, I did look at your CB and it said that you're an outspoken proponent thinking of proponent of translating public investment into basic research for public welfare. Mm-hmm. Why outspoken? Well, because
0: back in the nineties, it was something that you didn't do back when I was starting. I mean, you were dirty for, you know, for touching uh, uh, commercialization. And it, you know, it gets back to that term. It was like, to me, it was like, it was like inevitable. You know, you're, you, you watch these funding cycles at the NIH go up and down And yet commercial opportunity and commercial monies were always available, right? I mean, I could sit down, I mean, because I had developed a 293 cell system, when I arrived at Stanford, everybody wanted to work with me, including a lot of commercial entities that were gene therapy. And I could convince a VP who could write a check for a quarter of a million dollars, which is basically an NIH grant that you traumatize yourself for two years to get, um, I could get it in with a lunch, right? So, duh, (laughs) right? So, um, but there was still this constant pushback. So what I learned early on, because I went and got permissions to do this, um, and I got a track record written down. This is before Stanford even had an, you know, a, uh, a, a dean of conflict of interest, I'm um, sorry, I use air quotes all the time. Uh, it was, um, I got all the letters to, to make sure I was doing it right, so that when people came and accused me of things later, yep. I said, look, I've got all the permissions. The deans have approved this with the following boundary
1: conditions. So go away, leave me alone. Do you think it's still such a dirty? It's not such a dirty thing anymore, no, is it?
0: No. But it, it, it just comes from knowing that you're right. It's one of the things I tell my students. I said, if you know you're right, absent it being illegal or unethical, do it. Don't listen to people who tell you you shouldn't do it, right? I said, because really what they're doing is they're using the most primitive form of control. They're using shame to make you do something that they want you to do or not do. And that if you really believe that what you're doing is right, do it. Don't let anybody stop you, because if you do, you're basically, you belong to them.
1: So, so this, is really to, yeah, this is really back to reading people and understanding motivations and the people themselves. So which fascinating yeah. that on that balance of using public investments for basic research, How do you balance the importance of publications over patents? Oh,
0: publications come first. It doesn't, I mean, you know, you can patent something well before the publication is out, you can put the patent in, Uh, but I never let patents or commercial stuff get in the way of a paper. I mean, I continually have even conflicts with all of my companies over the years, where they say, well, we don't want you to publish that. I said, no, 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 no. We're publishing it. You know, the other sort of adage that I always say is, if you if you stop somebody from doing something or try to stop them, they will invent a way around you. Don't give people a reason to invent a way around you. If you give them the information of how you made that buffer, they'll buy the buffer rather than inventing their own. Because the moment you invent your own, somebody invents your own, then they're going to find a way to commercialize it around you. So just give it to them and because people are inherently lazy. They want to get
1: something which works. Is it lazy or is it just wanting to speed up the process? To well, get it's, to well, there? It's, it's that arm, arms race again, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you know, don't don't invent the weapon if you can buy the weapon because you right. want it in the arms race. You right. want to get to right. the result quicker. Yeah some quick fire questions. Mac or PC? PC. Yeah. Early bird or night owl?
0: Uh, night owl. Both, actually. But I get uh, more work done at night. Yeah. Uh, why? why Why? do you think you're better at night than in the morning? It just seems quieter. Okay. Sort of like uh, the mental ether just seems quieter you're less likely to get interrupted with an email that you see urgently requiring you to do whatever.
1: <clears throat> okay. So, so yeah. So things are just your space yeah. more than being interrupted. Yeah. Over the past 18 months or so, what'd you find better virtual or physical meetings? Oh, definitely still physical. I mean, What's I got to, to go people? down, uh, actually my first trip,
0: first on a plane trip was just last week down to Santa Barbara. I'm part of the, uh, Sean Parker. Uh, he started Napster and was a co-founder of Facebook and he has a, um, a Parker foundation for cancer immunotherapy, and he's got a, a lot of the immunotherapy people involved. And I'm there for basically technology. And so he pays for us to go to some very nice places uh, twice a year when we were allowed. And this was our first one down in Santa Barbara. Um, so uh, it was wonderful to finally be able to do things again um, in person. Although I have to say, I'm a bit of an introvert. Um, and so I like being alone. So the last 18 months weren't really that bad for me. I mean, uh, zoom is not my preferred mode of interacting um but uh not traveling was definitely a joy
1: did you find you had more time or actually things just got busier
0: no no plenty lots more time lots more time to focus and um no it was it was fantastic okay what's your favorite food hamburgers Ooh, curry actually i have to say no i'll take that back curry in america or in britain britain no 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 when i go to when i go to london i head straight for the local whatever the closest decent curry restaurant
1: yeah best in the world by far what is your uh, what food do you least like if you, if you were to go taken out for one of these meals and as soon as it was put in front of you think oh no i really don't want that
0: um Any kind of fishy fish or lamb. I like white fish. I don't like fishy fish. I I can't eat lamb. It's too gamey.
1: I'm with you
0: on the fish. Anything that I can see or taste and know what it was, if it was alive, that bothers me. So I can't handle bloody food. That reminds me that it was alive. Hamburgers, because they're all mashed up and you have no idea what it was. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so your steak is always well done then
0: uh, yes crisped
1: <laughs> i've got to ask beans you like hamburgers what do you have on it just ketchup uh, ketchup mustard barbecue ketchup, sauce
0: mustard cheese mayo, um, and pickles i don't like the tomato and uh, lettuce on
1: it just
0: too much path it's just too much it gets in the way of the real thing you're trying to taste
1: just oh, better, totally get that as well. So, would you stop off at McDonald's for a quick eat? Oh, yes, McDonald's I, or Burger King? Uh, McDonald's, yeah, good man, right answer. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Is that a Big Mac quarter pounder or just a hamburger? Quarter pounder and uh, fries, yeah. I do like a hamburger, just a plain. In fact, no matter what I have, my like chicken sandwich, a wrap, whatever else, always, I always have a hamburger just on the side. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I have to watch it. I mean, I, I actually, I managed to lose uh, 30 pounds over the whole COVID time. So it's, you know, the not traveling has really helped. Uh, and I've gotten myself down to uh, target weight. So is that just a healthier diet or have you been exercising? It's both. You know it's actually not drinking milk of all things and only eating breakfast and dinner it, and just going without lunch you you drink milk when you travel uh if it's a, vi- I did if it's available i won't anymore because it was i mean the reason i got into into milk was because we moved to connecticut the water when i was a kid tasted awful it had so many additives mm-hmm. it was just like how could anybody like this it was gross and so you know, we just got milk, and that was my standard, Um, and it wasn't until I moved to California that I realized that actually water can taste
1: good, or or not taste much,
0: taste at all, but at least, yeah, (laughs) can be refreshing without, you know, the
1: chemicals, Uh, the thought of milk in other places that may not be ice cold, or might not be really fresh, yeah, I don't do milk outside the house,
0: I mean, it's that stuff was deadly. With me and my 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 grandmother would send us from England these care parcels uh, that were usually filled with Cadbury's chocolate, right? And you know, back in the I have to say, back in the eighties, I think the chocolate was better. I don't know what they've done to it. At least here in the United States, it's just they have turned it into Hershey bars. It's gross, um, the stuff that they make. So, but chocolate and milk are deadly
1: for me. Okay. So, so, next time you're in the UK, I will get you the Cadbury's chocolate. Cadbury's <laughs> chocolate. Cadbury's chocolate. Yeah. Dairy milk. It's got to be dairy milk, hasn't dairy. it? That <laughs> okay. Tea or coffee? Uh, tea
0: to get up and then coffee midday. Okay. Wine or beer? Wine. I can't drink beer. I don't know why. It's just something about it.
1: Not even a stout. I like, certain,
0: I like certain British beers, the the um the warm drafts.
1: Yep. Uh, ales, bitters, and ales.
0: Bitters, uh, yeah, brown and bitter. So, stout, Guinness, Murphy's. Guinness is a bit too bit too strong for me. I mean, it's good, but I could never get drunk on beer. Martinis, gin martinis, absolutely.
1: Not espresso martinis, eh?
0: Espresso martinis,
1: what's that? Yeah. Oh, really?
0: They put espresso? Uh,
1: coffee liqueur, so Kahula generally. Okay. All and right, then- I'll try it next time. Yeah, no, okay. Well, now I owe you two things. So I'll actually get you the cabbage chocolate and you can take it down with an espresso martini. Uh, red or white wine? He said wine, so red or white? Red. Red. American?
0: I mean, there are some good California wines for sure, you know, but
1: you can't beat the french on lines in general so you've had a lot of time at home uh throughout it what would you rather do read a book or watch tv read a book okay what sort of genre would you i only
0: read science fiction and fantasy okay. i i'm only
1: interested in stuff that's not real so in that case what's your favorite movie um uh thor ragnarok okay
0: <laughs> good fiction that, i probably watched that about 80 times um or aliens the second of the alien franchise
1: yeah it's a weaver that star trek or star wars star trek yeah absolutely
0: star wars is i mean it's okay but it's just too i don't know just a little too
1: child childlike that so- Coming through to more serious stuff <laughs> again, it deviated off that, but it was fascinating. I'm sure
0: now that's, so, I'm sure now, like, some intelligence agencies have like a total profile of me now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. I don't know, but any conference organizer inviting you over, they know exactly what they've got to give you for to drink, yeah. to eat, <laughs> to, to read. Um, if you could change one thing in scientific research, what would it be? Um,
0: well. The review process, which is inherently broken, more in the grants arena than it is in um, paper review. But um, I mean, I'm not the first, obviously, to say that it's broken. But the grants, especially, I mean, the NIH, it's just, it's just awful. I sit on grant committees all the time, and you know, I don't think a lot of grants get a fair shake. And all it takes is one person to give it a low score on a board of 50, and that's it. It's just sunk. And there's, you know, there's no amount of arguing that you can do that doesn't come off as combative. Uh, that's going to basically bring a, a a grant back into the fundable range. And I just have always felt that large committees are wrong. You know, small committees. Are what you need you're more likely to come to consensus with a group of five than a group of 50 um and so uh you know i remember i was put in charge of a large one of the large program projects at the nih to you know get it funded and they said okay wh- wh- what do you need I-, I said i need the following three or four people and we'll we'll pick the best and then they said okay well that's that's good um here's here's a list of 50 people that will be on your committee. And I just thought, this is a disaster. You know, it's just gonna, it just turns into a disaster.
1: I I take it at that point. So so I I sit on the UK UK, uh, funding panels. You say it's big, does that mean there's not much discussion because there's 50 people. So actually people tend to talk to the ones that they've been charged to talk about and very few others contribute at that point? Yeah, well, they're not, how can you? Right? I mean, are not all given an opportunity to
0: talk. And, you know, we all know this. Some people are just more talkative than others. They all think that, you know, th- and they become the dominant voice uh, in many of the decisions. And that's just wrong um, because there's plenty of smart people who just don't like to talk because it's a large group. Uh, and so it, I don't think those large groups really pay much attention to the psychosocial, Environment and context of what happens to humans in larger groups, um, and so uh, you know you're basically playing to the to the alpha, uh, and it, the the alpha is not always the smartest in the room.
1: I, I, from the UK side, I think it depends on the chair very much, and if you have a good chair, they will bring people in, yeah. even if they've not been talking to it, right? Because they know they've got skills in that area, and they will invite other comments, especially if there's a bit of a discrepancy between two people with yeah. a score or, 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 as you say, an, an odd an odd score, then bring someone in with X. I would love to know if there's been a study ever done
0: on large versus small groups in terms of looking at the same sets of grants and do they fund the same grants? I mean, I know, for instance, I don't know if you've seen it when you're looking at graduate students, um, I know that if we have, let's say seven faculty looking at the at the graduate students, and then we all look at all the, everybody, let's say we get 50, we all seem to pick the same seven, right? Now that's interesting to me. So do we need 50 to choose the same seven? 50 people to choose the same seven? So I, I would love to see if there's been any kind of statistical analysis done on something like that.
1: I, do. I, you know, I, I just thinking about this. I've a couple of grant panels actually currently at the moment, so going through lots of different things. I tend to be a really generous scorer and a really bad scorer. I I really try and pull mm-hmm. them apart. Yeah, the ones that are good, I will give them up. I'm the good same as you. Score. I'm the same way as you.
0: I I I'm very forgiving. I mean, I am the best person to ever get your grant or paper to review because I. I generally see the merit in what people are trying to do. And I would rather spend the time drawing it out than dismissing it outright. Yeah, but I do give bad scores too. Me too. Oh, no, 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 no. If it's bad, it's like, okay, this is, this is hopeless. <sighs>
1: yeah. How critical is your feedback? My, mine is brutal because I think you've got to be honest. You've got to say if it's a low score, be nice with it, but be honest because then they can correct it. Oh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately,
0: with the NIH, you don't really give. You know, if you if a paper uh, if a grant is not fundable, they generally don't even get the room. They don't even get discussed. So, therefore, any comments that
1: you might have even written are never get back. The UK is pretty good, and actually, even some of the American ones. I I haven't seen what the feedback process is yet, but. we'll see i can't can't say too much at the minute Uh,
0: a lot of the private ones peter um are uh they won't do it either you know they just won't spend the time because they'll get hundreds of grants and and people will just sort through it and go garbage 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 oh this is you know maybe this is going to be a must
1: i i would love to know what actually i'm also sometimes i could be more critical of the ones i top rank Mm -hmm than the right. ones that aren't, just because you think, well, A, it's going to get funded, but they can be so much better if they do. It's still great. Right. Uh, you suddenly realize if they read these comments, they think the score's is going to be really bad. You end up having to justify right. why you're saying bad comments. Did you right. find the same? Right. No, it's um,
0: generally for me, it's not so much the experimental protocol that they've done. It's how they presented it. Um, and so generally my comments are around, you need to put this here, and you need more of that there. Um, I mean, experimental protocol, yes, if there's something, but I don't know about you, but more, I think too often, for instance, I'll be given an immunology grant to review, and I'm not an expert in every form of immunology. And so I don't have anything to tell them whether or not there should be a suppressor macrophage or they should be using this antibody or that antibody. It's just not my domain i'm more the big picture and how to present the idea so that it's
1: um so that it's it's fundable yeah the the pitch Mm -hmm. We, we are nearly up to an hour i did say it would go really fast but i want to ask you what is the next challenge the next big thing that will happen uh that that is possible and also if anything was to be possible what would you like to see developed?
0: So I think, well, both of the things that I'm involved with uh, are, I think, both possible and next. And one is an atomic imaging approach. Uh, and that's actually reading the position of every atom, both yep. math and position uh, in an, an object. Um, and uh, so that's one. And then the other is the use of, um, basically novel physics quantum entanglement approaches to measure things at a distance um, and so i actually presented an idea oh gosh it must have been about almost eight years ago now to a nature conference of you of how to use quantum entanglement or how we should be using quantum entanglement i mean i'm not a quantum physicist so but i thought you know i think it should be possible to do this and then Lo and behold, three or four years later, somebody came out and showed that it was possible right? to basically measure. So the idea is that you would quantum entangle a photon, send it into a cell, have it do something. And then the information you got back was similarly quantum entangled. Uh, And that way you could only receive back the information that you put in, not noise. Right, because noise is not similarly entangled, um, and so it doesn't read back in, in the detector. And so this is now being used in the military with something called quantum radar, as a way to uh, as a way to um, read out uh, you know things at a distance. So you could you can see a plane at a distance because you're only receiving back the information you sent out, and they can't spoof you by sending the same kind of radio waves back because they're not entangled. An entangled photon is basically a barcoded photon, right? And so you only read back the barcodes that you sent out. So it ends up being, and there's a couple of papers already been published now on this kind of approach. And it's just, the, the, the signal to noise is, uh, is extraordinary. And I think with the right tools, one's going to be able to basically measure things at a distance without
1: touching them. I was going to ask you if you ever worry about not having another brilliant idea, but obviously that you've just answered that question within, uh, it's, it's your mind is already working at how to, to apply to these. to The
0: things. horizon, right? I mean, I've been reading science fiction since I was eight years old and, you know, everything yeah. from aliens to warp drive to, you know, all kinds of fancy creative imagination that people come up with. And it's, you know, you're, you're sort of, you've already been
1: shown the horizon i I've, I've got to ask two more questions because you moved your head to the side for one minute and i saw some uh, dumbbells i think
0: oh yes yes
1: there what we are. weight are you curling at the moment
0: um only about 40 or 50
1: nothing you know is that pounds or kilos oh pounds <clears throat> thank goodness that's still that's still a fair bit if my maths are right to be curling on each individual.
0: Yeah. 30, I mean, 30, 40, it's, that's the limit. It's all I need to do. You know, it's not about bulking. It's just about, for me, it's just about, actually I have a, I have a, I've had a bad back, you know, since I was 30 or so. And so as long as I stay fit, um, it's not a problem. I know, I don't, I don't, my back doesn't go out because when your back goes out, it's two weeks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can empathize for sure. So, Is that the only exercise you do with the weights? I have a, I have a, a,
0: oh, well, no, I do all kinds of stuff. I, I have a trainer online three times a week. um, And he puts me through my paces and then I ride my bike.
1: Okay. And one other comment is just before we, we went, uh, started talking, you mentioned UFOs. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So I don't know if anybody's ever seen the, uh, if you've seen all the stuff on the um, the fighter pilots around the USS Nimitz and the UAPs, right? The UFOs, it's been all over the news. I mean, if you haven't, you've been living under a rock um, and the military has admitted that uh, these things, you know, they don't know what they are, but they're real. So I actually work with the team who got those videos released from the Pentagon. And I've been involved with this for the last 10 years since the, basically the CIA showed up in my office and asked me to help them um, with some uh, of their pilots and ground personnel who'd gotten too close to what they claimed were UFOs uh, and that they'd had been um, they'd gotten sick. Uh, and uh, they had asked around who's the guy who knows the most about blood analysis. And they said, oh, you need to go talk to this guy, Gary Nolan, he's got this instrument called a Saitoff. And so they showed up in my office unannounced one day and they sh- started showing me the data. And I honestly thought it was a candid camera joke um, until it started getting serious. And now it is, just go, you know, go look it up. People say, oh, Gary's drank the
1: Kool-Aid, et cetera.
0: You know, no. And, do, and I'm still involved with it.
1: Is there, Is there any immune, can you pick up immune signatures or changes with these pilots?
0: Um, unfortunately, it had happened too long ago uh, for it to happen. But we've actually got some work ongoing where, um, if these things happen again, we'll be able to collect the blood more immediately.
1: So, do you think these UFOs are? Do you think these UFOs are uh, natural to Earth, or do you think they are? No idea, and I, I just
0: don't know. I, all I'm about is collect the data. Don't okay. ignore the data. Come to no conclusions, because if you come to a conclusion, you bias it wrong, and then you're debunked. So just collect the data.
1: OK. I'm glad I asked that last question. That was brilliant. Uh, Gary, we, we, we're over the hour. But thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, yep. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for watching or listening to Flowstars, Uh So as Peter O'Toole. Please do look at the other episodes that are out there and subscribe to the channels. Gary, thank you very much. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Uh, hey.